0: I'll never forget about 12 years ago, the first time I ever went to a service at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. And I was so excited to hear John Piper preach. And while I was waiting for that, I found myself in tears, never quite experiencing what I was experiencing in the worship that came before the preaching. And I remember asking myself, is it, the, is it just the words are better than the songs we sing? We sing some of those songs. But what I was experiencing was a congregation that for 40 years had been given a big God with the wonderful truths of the gospel. And it was people whose faith had grown so that when they praised God, they weren't just singing a song. And as I sit here this morning and just thinking 11 years in, it seems like we're singing like we believe the words we're reading, and I pray that God continues to mature us in those ways. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Before Him, in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. That last verse, to the praise of His glorious grace. Grace. The purpose of the message this morning is that the purpose of the sermon, the prayer of Paul's heart as he's reminding these truths is that at the end of these spiritual blessings that are described as every spiritual blessing in the heavenly. Places which we can't even comprehend a statement like that, but that at the end of it, his readers with dropped jaw could do nothing else but praise God for a type of grace that is incomprehensible. That's the goal. One of my favorite chapters of the Bible is Isaiah 40 because it shows Christ as the strong Savior who destroys enemies but brings reward with Him. And His hands are so big uh, that He just marks off the universe like this with a span, it says. He holds all the waters in His hands. And yet these strong arms tend his sheep like a gentle shepherd and holds them in his arms. And in this chapter, there's a command. Some commands just seem more fun than others. And one of his commands is in verse uh, 26 of Isaiah 40 is this. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. It's a command to walk outside and look up and say, who created these? It's something we should do often. Last week we were just on the North Shore right on Lake Superior. You can't see across it where we were, up by Grand Marais. And there was a full moon while we were there. And about 9 o'clock at night, in blackness out there, all of a sudden, this light that's huge starts to rise. You couldn't help but worship. It looked, it looked surreal, We're called to look up and say, who created these things? Well, our text today wants us to look at our salvation that was wrought for us in Christ and began before the foundation of the world in the election of the Father. And he wants us to see it. He wants us to think about it, to ponder it, so that at the end, We worship better. You're created to be a worshiper. No matter what you worship, the question is, is what do you worship? Do you worship his creation and the things he has given us or the people he has given us? Or do you worship the creator? My prayer is, if you're a non-believer, that you would see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that you'll see his grace and be drawn to him. And if you're a believer, I pray that you'd be strengthened, that you would say, you know what? I've been taking for granted the grace of God that I've been shown in Christ. I think one of my favorite R.C. Sproul clips ever are illustrations, as he talks about when he was teaching a seminary class, and he uses this illustration to show how so often we take grace for granted, and he talked about on the first day how he told them about three term papers, one is going to be due September thirtieth, October thirtieth, and November thirtieth He said a any one of them is a day late, you're going to get an F on it, unless you're at a funeral or someone dies. He made it clear from the beginning. And on September 30th, 25 people out of his class of 250 showed up begging for grace, begging for more time. He said most of them were freshmen. They said, we, we haven't got the hang of this yet. The paper took longer than we thought. And he said to them, okay, I'm going to give you three days. In three days, you've got to have your paper and you're going to get an F. And this is the last time. You're not going to get a break next time. And October 30th comes around and 50 students don't have their paper done. Now, the 25, when they came in on September 30th, looked terrified. But now these 50 don't even look all that worried, but they're there begging for grace. And so, he says, okay, three days, have a in." Well, you probably can guess how this story goes, but on November 30th, 150 students showed up without their papers done. And he says the demeanor in which they strolled in was appalling. And he said one of them was a Marine veteran that kind of strolled in and he says, what's up, Dr. Sproul? He's one of the ones without his paper done. They, he wasn't worried about getting an F on this uh, last paper. And Sproul said, I'm going to do what I said I would do. Everyone that doesn't have their paper done is getting an F. And they began someone cried out that's not fair and he said who said that and that student said it was me that's not fair and he says all right looked at the grade book he says what well, if what you want is fairness then i'm going to give you justice i'm going to go back to october 30th and i'm going to go back to september 30th and i'm going to give you what's fair Anyone else want what's fair? Nobody took him up on that offer. And he says, this is the temptation. This is what we can do as Christians when we become familiar with grace. We take it for granted our sin doesn't seem to bother us the way it did at the beginning. We begin to expect it. In fact, we turn grace into something that isn't grace at all. We turn it into a right, something we're owed. And yet, the only thing we are owed, the only thing justice demands is our eternal demise in hell because we have defied the eternal God. The reason why hell is eternal, you've heard me say it so many times, is because the one in whom we sinned against is the eternal God. And justice demands not a hundred years in purgatory, not a thousand years in purgatory, eternal Destruction, because we defied the eternal God. Unless the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ, stands in your place, you stand open wide to the justice of Almighty God. So let's pray that God does a work in the next 40 to 50 minutes, that our hearts are loving Christ more, that our faith is strengthened as we look at this text. Let's just look at verse 3 again, put ourselves in the context. We've kind of been dissecting these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's done this, he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And then he begins to unpack that in verse 4 by saying he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why did, what did he choose us for? That we should be holy and blameless before him. The reason why he needed to choose us before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless because we were unholy and blameworthy. That if God the Father and the Son in the eternal council didn't determine to save the elect, they would be left wide open to his justice but he chose them to be holy, to be pure, to be set apart, to be sanctified. And blameless before his presence, that spiritual blessing ought to blow our mind. How can I, how can you, rebels of God, ever be presented into the presence of the holy, eternal God, us not be destroyed because he chose us in him christ took the wrath so that our future what's in store for us is not a fearful expectation of the wrath of god falling into the hands of the living god open bare to his justice rather we know that our sin before him is dealt with in Christ, even here today. And that one day, when we're glorified, when Christ returns or we go there, we'll have no more sin. That's a spiritual blessing. And then in verse 5, what we're going to look at today, he says this. The end of verse 4 says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. So let's look at the motive. The charge of the message is to praise your father for his glorious grace that's been worked for us in Christ. Let's look at his motive. It says, in love. I talked about how predestination or election can be a very controversial topic. And that next week we're going to look at some of those. We're going to look at the more topical sermon on uh, election and predestination and deal with Uh, some of the tensions we feel. And so often when people talk about predestination, they get angry. All they see is God keeping someone out that wants in. And that's not true. In fact, when Paul puts an attribute on the predestinating choosing of Christ, he says, in love, he predestined. In love, he did this. This is what Paul always says. In First 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.4, right at the beginning of that letter, he says this. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know, brothers, loved by God, love is the motive that he has chosen you. They could have said, how do you know that, Paul? How do you know that he's chosen me? How do you know that in his love he chose me? Here's what he says. Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. He says, that's how I know. Because when you were called, you were called effectually. The Holy Spirit came and brought about the new birth. That's how we know that you were chosen. And when he writes his letter, his second letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you. We ought to give thanks not for you or to you, but give thanks to God for you. All right? If I give you a glass of water, you thank me for the glass of water. But Paul thanks God for them. Why? Here's what he says. But we give thanks, but we always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because he chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. So he thanks God for their faith and their sanctification in the Spirit because he knows it comes from God. He doesn't thank them for their faith. In fact, Paul never does that. He always thanks God for the faith of the people he's writing to. But what I wanted to point out is that there's this formula. In love he predestines. In love he chose. In love he chose. It was no different with the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Moses says, For you are a people holy to the Lord God. The Lord has chosen you to be his people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, why did he pick them? It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. <laughs> why did he choose Israel? to be his people. It wasn't because he looked at them and saw something in them. It's because he loved them. That's why. He set his love on them. In fact, John says in 1 John 4.19, he says, we love because he first loved us. We wouldn't even have love for God or love for one another if he didn't love us first and so we see the motive of God's predestining adoption not just choosing us to be holy and blameless but now he's talking about adoption the motive is love All right. now let's look at his work his work is predestining you as sons in Christ All right? Let's look at the word adoption and and try to think about it for a minute. So the way it's translated in English, adoption to himself as sons. Adoption as sons is one word. Now the word for adoption is thesia. What he could have said is, that's how he predestined you, adopted you as daughters. Or he could have said technothesia, uh, adopted as a child. But he doesn't say that. He says huyothesia, which is adoption as a son. Now, some of you ladies might be sitting there saying, well, how am I adopted As a son. What is Paul trying to point out? Well, to be adopted as a son is to get the full inheritance, to have the full status of the firstborn son. And he's talking to men and women being adopted as sons. So adoption worked a little different. In their culture, so as we uh, look at this word of adoption to try to help explode our minds about the grace of uh, of God in Christ towards us in His electing us, uh, we're going to look at adoption in two main ways. The first way we think of it is belonging to a family. Adoption has this idea to it that you belong that you have a family, that you have a place where you belong. And the Bible is rich in speaking to us like that. In fact, Jesus continually prayed to our Father, which would have been something a Jew would have never done, to find the audacity to call God our Father. And yet that's how he taught his disciples to pray. That's how he taught them that your father, if he knows how to take care of the birds, how much more does he know how to take care of you? And so there's this idea of family or belonging. In Psalm eight five, we read that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows, God in his holy habitation. We read in Luke 13 a parable or a a picture that Jesus gives to what it's going to be like in the last day, to those who are left without a family. In Luke 13, 24, uh, we see this. Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he'll answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Essentially, if that in modern-day language, we came to church. We listened to sermons. But he'll say... I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. People will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. It's terrifying terrifying picture Jesus paints, that there will be some that will see the family, Abraham's family, God's people at a celebration meal, a celebration party, and yet they're not known, and they don't belong, and they're left outside weeping and gnashing their teeth. R.C. Sproul says, I know that if that ended up being me, he said I'd be a weeper and not a gnasher. He says, for I would know that there's not one thing I can point to in my life for why I should be in there. I would just be sad that I wasn't. But there's others that must think that they deserve to be in there, and they're the gnashers. But this idea of adoption is that you have a family, that you belong. You're not going to be left out. You're going to be with Abraham. You're going to be at the wedding feast. You're going to be at the place where eternal joy is, where eternal light is, where there is no more tears. As Peter thought about leaving his own family and all that he lost in following Jesus, in Luke eighteen twenty-eight, Peter said, See, we've left our homes to follow you. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or, or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He says, Don't think that you've left your family and are going to be without a family. It's gonna, you're gonna belong so much more and for all eternity. In fact, one of the surprising things Jesus says in his ministry in Luke 12 51 is he says, Don't think I've come to bring peace on the earth. No, I tell you, rather division. For from now on, one house will be divided. Are, are will be, are in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. Jesus Christ separates earthly families on the basis of what you do with him. Your church family is more your family than your flesh and blood family outside of Christ. Is that not true? Your earthly family will last what? It's like a mist. Very short time. But your spiritual family, your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's eternal. And at another point, they said, your mothers and brothers, they want to talk to you. They think you're crazy. They think you're out of your mind. He says, I'll tell you who my mothers and brothers are and sisters. It's these ones right here that are listening to the word of God and obeying it. But in Christ, our adoption that's been predestined for the elect is into his family. 1 John 3, if you have your Bibles, turn here. When you're adopted, when you're born again by the Spirit of God, you start to take on resemblance of your father and of Christ In 1 John 3, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? Notice that it's given, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but when we we know that that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Once you see Christ perfectly, you won't sin again. That'll be the cause of not sinning again, which means the more you see of Christ now, to that degree, you'll be sanctified and have victory over sin in your life. This is why we always seek to put Christ and God on display. As you treasure him, you begin to hate The opposite of him, which is rebellion against him, sin. And so then here's what he says. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And then if we were to read on to verse 8, we don't have time to read all this. But he says, whoever makes the practice of sinning, meaning your life uh, practice, uh, the walk of your life is sin, whoever makes Whoever does not practice righteousness is is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So what he's saying there is there's two types of people. There's some that are practicing repentance and striving for righteousness, confessing their sin in a battle with their sin, and then there's other people that just say, bring it on. Whatever I want, whenever I want it. I'm God in my own life. I don't think I'll give an account to him. And those people, it's evident that their father, they say he calls them children of the devil, that their father is not gone. But in our adoption there's this idea of belonging to the family, but in our text, the main thing that's highlighted, he says adoption as sons, he's pointing to the inheritance. I'm amazed that when I'm gone and Scott's preaching, how often he's preaching from Hebrews and I'm preaching from Ephesians, and how often they just amplify each other. Last week, you guys were talking about the inheritance in Christ's blood in the new covenant that you're given the holy city of Jerusalem which obviously culminates in Christ. You get to live in the presence of Christ forever. That's the inheritance that's guaranteed because of Christ's blood. So the city was the picture of the inheritance. Well, here Paul is highlighting another aspect of the diamond of our inheritance uh, when he says we're adopted as sons. So when you think of inheritance, the, um, you know, we think of money or land or property that is given uh, to the one who's inheriting uh, it. And, and that's in view here. Uh, but also, what's different in adoption in Paul's day was the inheritance of a status. So let's look at these both these. So let's think of land in possession. Um, we in Christ uh, we are sons. Uh, Galatians 4 7 says, so we are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Alright? First Peter 3 says this Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. You've been caused to be born again to an inheritance. See, you you become a son now that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only does God elect you before the foundation of the earth, he causes you to be born again, and he keeps you by God's power through faith. And all that is, that that Peter's pointing to is this inheritance, this place. You see, Jesus cared about this. It's important for us to know where we're going to lay our head. Have you ever been on vacation? You never booked a hotel room? I don't know if this problem is like this anymore, where you just plan on getting one, and you can't get one, and you can't get one, and you want a place to lay your head. Well, in John 14, right before Jesus goes to the cross, on the night he was betrayed, here's what He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, oh, there's a place. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. When Christ left and he sent the Spirit, have you ever felt ripped off? Jesus said it's better that the Spirit comes. We have a helper. And by the way, while he's gone, he's preparing a place for you and for me. If it were not so, would I have told you i go prepare a place for you? If I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. No place without Christ is a worthy place. It's the presence of God that we've been called to in Christ. Think of Psalm 23, the end of it. Surely, goodness and mercy. When you're on your deathbed, when you're on your deathbed, and you're wondering what hope is there, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You don't only you don't only belong in a family, there's a place for you in the presence of God. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints in the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my my king and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And then in verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So riches, the Bible tells us that we'll inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. There's a place for us. We're going to dwell with God. But also, and this is maybe the part of adoption we don't understand as Americans quite so much, is there's this transition of position. In the Greco-Roman world, if you were a leader of a hundred soldiers, let's say, in Ephesus, and and that was your position, and you were about to retire, your son would become a leader to those hundred soldiers. And every now and then, either a leader didn't have a son, or their son died, or uh something happened where they would have ad- adopt in almost always in the greco-roman world any adoption would be an adoption of some family member down the line maybe you have a nephew although he doesn't have a son he has a nephew that he can adopt that when he adopts him he takes the position in society as his adopted father had. And that's what was seen. That's what they were used to. They were used to seeing uh, adopting either to a close family member or for surely it would be some friend. But turn with me to chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. Here's who the elect are. Here's who the adopted are. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. The elect were sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. So we all were sons of disobedience children of wrath. Your life looked like this. You're enslaved to every passion you have. If you have a sexual lust, you have to fulfill it. If you have a physical lust for, uh, let's say, overeating, you have to give yourself over to it. If you struggle with laziness, you don't want to work, you have to give yourself over to it. You are a slave to your passions when you were children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind were by very nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But look at this. But God, being rich in mercy because of what? The great love We can't even comprehend this type of love because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? The sons of disobedience, the children of wrath are so loved that they're raised up. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God on the throne. He's the head of all rule and authority. Everything is under him. And you've been adopted as sons so that Christ's throne that he's sitting on, you share with him as co-heirs with Christ. You're not just in a family you don't just have a place. Your status is you're going to judge angels. Our minds are too weak. Our thoughts are too small. Do you see what God has done for you in Christ? Do you see the type of love and the type of grace that he has given you? Listen how Uh, S.M. Baugh describes this. Greco-Roman adoptees were often members of a father's extended relations. In the case of believers, God has taken the most distant foreigners to be his kin for inheritance of his whole estate. Not the deserving or the good, and not many well-born powerful or wise but those who are by nature not of his akin, but children of wrath, and darkened sons of disobedience, his helpless, wicked, sinful enemies, under the thrall to the re- are under to the realm of darkness, God does not place these new subordinate, inferior uh, or these new sons into a subordinate, inferior family. He could bring them into the family but have his brother take care of them. He appoints them all to become co-heirs with his natural firstborn son in whom the whole creation is summarized in verse 10. For co-rule over all things with him as those who have been co-seated with him in the high heavenlies, these stupendous acts of divine grace have no parallel in Greco-Roman society. It surpasses even the unthinkable idea of the Roman Empire adopting a slave from the most barbaric hinterlands to be the next emperor. No wonder Paul exalts in the praise of his glorious grace, which he has bestowed on us in the beloved. A couple weeks ago, I gave made up an imaginary character that was living in Ephesus, Claudia, a 22-year-old slave. No family, no rights, no money, no status, always dreaming of what what if she could have just been born into the family where she's a slave? How much more rights she would have had. But what if she found Paul's letter? What if she found it and she read it and she believed it what if she believed that even herself that she could be blameless and holy in his presence belong to his family not only belong but be co-heirs with Christ I can tell you this if she believed it she would praise God for a type of grace her mind couldn't even have imagined. She couldn't even have imagined a type of grace so great and so grand. So let me finish by reading Paul's prayer for those who read this letter. Because he knows it takes supernatural power to help believers minds to comprehend this here's what he says ephesians 115 for this reason because i've heard of your faith in the lord jesus and your love for all the saints so he's looking at their faith and he's looking at their love he says for that reason i do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he's worked for us in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above every rule and authority, power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things stood the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the one who went to the highest throne. And so when we read the words that sound so easy to say, yet so hard to believe, when we read the words, in love he predestined us for adoption Not to someone else, but to himself. And not only to himself, but his sons. My prayer is, is that you have bowed knee to Christ. God in his grace, though you don't deserve it, has sent his son to die for you. You don't know when eternity will come. One of my best friends in Minnesota, his brother-in-law, just got killed on a motorcycle. Deer took him right off. Last Tuesday, his funeral was Friday. He's my age. He's either in Christ or he's not in Christ. You read Revelation, there's those who stand before the great white throne. Heaven and earth flee away. There's no place for them except to stand before the wrath of God. And then there's those whose names are written in the book of life, who have this heavenly Jerusalem that comes down. They get to dwell with God and His family forever and rule with Him as co-heirs with Christ. Will you have Him? Will you have Him Will you receive that grace? Will you say, I know I'm a sinner. I know there's no hope in this world until I find Christ. There's no one here that needs to go home tonight concerned that they might face an eternity apart from God, standing outside the door, weeping and gnashing their teeth. If you will have Christ, if you will cling to Him by faith, you will prove to be one of his elect, one of his adopted. All that Christ has, his perfect life, will be put in your account. Your sins will be washed away.